Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. We'll pick up in 17 here and... Uh, um, as we're working our way down through here, we discussed the Bereans, the more noble Bereans. Um, and what made them noble? They checked it out. And... and just as an aside, if you don't get if you don't get anything out of this class, hopefully you get something out of the class. But if you don't get anything out of the class, I'd like you to go away with one major big picture item. This this is a major big picture item. Don't believe everything you're preached. Don't believe everything the preacher says. Check it out for yourself. You know, if there's anything you get out of here, get that. And don't don't take everything the teacher says for granted, too. Check it out for yourselves. You have a Bible. You have the Holy Spirit. You have your brain. Check it out. And that's what the Bereans did, and that's what made them noble. In fact, you know, Paul commended them for this because they were not ones that just take everything he said for granted. Rather, they went and checked it out. Now, they were a step ahead of the other ones, right? Because in Thessalonica, they didn't do that. In Thessalonica, they, you know, they immediately attacked him. Now, I mean, understand there are some things that, um, that, you, you, that you have to be firm on. The person to work of Christ, things like that. But just because the preacher stands up and says that's what he thinks the Bible says doesn't mean that's what the Bible says. He, you need to check it out. And that's what the Bereans did. And what did they find when they checked it out? Paul was right. Paul was right. They found those out. And therefore, many of them that believed. Now, who's the them there? Who's that referring to? Verse 12. Who's the them? And who who would that be? What what nationality? This is the Jews. This is really, I mean, if you want to think about it, this is the first time Paul's really had any level of success with Jews, right? I mean, so far, wherever he's gone, he's got a few Jews, you know, that believe in that. But by and large, they're the ones that run him out of town. The people that really receive it with joy are the Gentiles and the prominent women, it says here. But then what happens in 13? Well, the Jews from Thessalonica get wind of what's going on. So they came down there and stirred up the crowds. Who's the crowds? The rabble. You know, the, the, the ones that didn't really hear. They're just trying to stir them up. And immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So Paul leaves. Silas and Timothy remain in Berea. So that tells you what? What does that statement tell you that, about the dynamic of the team? Paul was the one that did the speaking, right? He was the one that's causing all the trouble. And, and at least in the minds of the people there, you know, more or less Silas and Timothy were along for the ride. Now, where did Paul pick up Timothy? In, in 
And Lystra. Right? Yeah. I mean, did Timothy start out with Paul on this missionary journey? No. No, so evidently, and, and you got to read between the lines here, if Timothy's with Paul here and he's not with Paul when he starts, duh, he's got to be picked up along the way, so where would he have been picked up? Well, probably in his hometown, Lystra. Which tells you something about the church in Lystra, right? What does it tell you about the church? <laughs> that it was thriving to a degree, that it was a viable, thriving church. And that's where, you know, you have Eunice and Lois, where Paul talks about Timothy's grandmother mother. Um, so there, there's a, a church going there. And we read that it was in really Timothy's home that the church met. All right. So he's got Timothy there. And then uh, those that... So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So they took Paul to Athens. Then Paul sent them back to Berea to bring along Silas and Timothy. Now, what were Silas and Timothy doing in Berea? Probably discipling the church, right? Yeah. <laughs> Watching the Browns practice, okay. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. Well, I heard one today that says uh, if you have a Michigan fan, Ohio State fan, both in the both in the same in, in the second grade, which one's bigger? The Michigan State fan. He's 18 years old. <laughs> Think about it. We have a little drum. Yeah. Da -da -da -da. All right. Anyways, back to the series here. Um, so he sends for Timothy and Silas to come back to Athens. So Paul's all alone in Athens. That's the bottom line. He's by himself in Athens. Now, what do you know about Athens? What do you know about it? I think it's a commercial. It's a major city. That's one thing. It was a center of culture and philosophy. All right. Um, although the Roman, the Romans were in charge, where did they get a significant amount of their culture and, and law and philosophy? From the Greeks. And who set that up? Alexander the Great. Who set that up? All right. So they. You know, this is a prominent cultural city here, all right? Um, it's certainly not the capital of the world, Rome is, is that. But when you talk about culture, philosophy, or anything like that, Athens is the place to be, all right? So he shows up at this place. And while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked from within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. All right, and if there's anything you know about Greek you know, religion, they had idols, they had goddess and goddesses coming out the yin-yang, right? I mean, they had a god and goddess for everything. Um, Zeus, Athena, Hera, all of those, you know. Um, they had all kinds of gods. And one of the things that you find in, in, in uh, Athens is you had a temple all over the place. All right, you had temples to Diana, to, the, to Hera, to Zeus, to you name it, they had a temple. And Paul's walking along the city, and what does he see? A whole culture given over to idolatry. All right? And it bothered him. It said his spirit was stirred within him. And he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, 
and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Paul wasn't a slouch. He went in there and he went to the synagogue. Now, when did the synagogue meet? Well, on Saturdays. And, the, and, the, and you know, the God-fearing Gentiles were there. And then down the marketplace, where did you do? Well, it's, you know, it's like the old guy sitting around the benches, you know, in the park on Saturday morning talking. Um, that's where you went down. And Athens being the cultural city, that's where a lot of the people went down to discuss the latest new fad, the latest new philosophical notion that comes along. And they would go down to the marketplace, and he reasoned with them daily. He discussed daily with them. Um, now, now, this is interesting here. <coughs> one of the, um, I don't want to put it, when I was growing up, I was taught that the way you did evangelism, if you're, if you're going to be a real evangelist, you knocked on somebody's door with your big Bible, and you confronted them about the gospel. And if they invited you in, you gave them the gospel. And if they didn't, you you know shake your feet off and go to the next house, you know, kind of thing. Um, and it was always a confrontational kind of thing. You're always confronting them, um, calling down hellfire and brimstone. Um, and yet, yet, as you look at the New Testament, what was the major mode of evangelism? Practiced by just about everyone in the New Testament. Relationship. Paul didn't stand up and call them all a bunch of God-forsaken, damned, liberal, heretic, unbelieving, whatever, whatever's, whatever's. Right? He didn't do that. He didn't call them pagans on their way to hell. He reasoned with them. And I think one of the things that as believers we need to to understand is that um, you know, it's a lot easier to catch flies with honey than vinegar. And you don't want to be abrasive. I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a, a sense in which we need to be um, non-compromising um, not, uh, non on the message of the gospel. You can't do that. But how did Christ talk to the people? Was he abrasive? You think you walk through the crowd saying, you're damned, you're not, you are, you're not, you... I mean, he was right. Couldn't... Being Lord, he knew, right? I mean, he, he would he would, he would, would go after the hypocrites and, the, and the, 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 you know, the Pharisees. But Christ didn't walk around saying, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. He, he reasoned with people. He talked to people. He shared with people. And that's what you see Paul doing here. He doesn't walk in and start damning them all to eternal damnation, he reasons with them. He, he just talks to them. And, and this is the other thing here. You know, one, one of the things that I think, one of, the, one of the problems that I think some Christians have is we're pretty pompous and arrogant when we talk to certain people or when we share truth. And what I mean by that is that we know we have the answer, Right? But how do we come across? We bunch come across sometimes as a bunch of obnoxious know-it-alls. Now we have the answer. I mean, we're not disputing the fact that we know the truth. But sometimes I think we have a danger, if we're not careful, of coming across in a very abrasive, confrontational manner. And and that doesn't do the gospel. Message any good, does it? 
you think Christ came across an abrasive, confrontational manner in his ministry? No. Not unless the Pharisees. Well, that's a different story. They were the hypocrites. He would go after them, but the average person, he never, he never treated them with disdain. And one of the things I think we need to be able to do is share our faith in a, in a respectful manner towards those who don't agree with us. We know we're right, but how we come across sometimes belays a, almost a, a pompous, arrogant, looking down on this total idiot who doesn't believe the gospel demeanor that, that doesn't serve us well. Am I making any sense on this? Well, I don't agree with that. With what? Okay, what don't? I mean, before I got, uh, came to Christ, you know, Christians that approached me, didn't approach me like that. I can only just go by my experience. Right. When I, before I came to Christ, and, you know, my family, people in my family that were saved, they would try to talk to me and reason with me, but they never came, you know, try to shove it down my throat and make me eat it. You know what I mean? Not all Christians do it. I agree. Not, not every believer on the planet. I'm in contact with or not like that, you know. Every now and then I meet somebody like that. That's somebody who used to have on a bishop call. Mm -hmm. oh, but the, the, the lay people, pretty much in my thing, yeah. they still be pretty. I've been around. I've been around Christians that are that are very confrontational. They're the other, they're the opposite way. Really? Very confrontational. Very abrasive. Um, very much in your face. And I'm just saying, generally, how do we want to come across? You know, we don't we don't want to compromise the message. But you don't need to be abrasive either. And, and we need to strike that balance. Jamie or or Don. Well, Somebody had a hand up. Basically, you already touched upon the way to do it. I think the the easiest way to do it is to through relationship. Right. You know, get to know them. Let them get to see you. You know, you build trust in the relationship. With them. Well, it's a lot easier than hey, you got to listen to them. You know. And, well, when I was growing up, I was discouraged to be friends with unbelievers. They might taint me. They might corrupt me. And and the whole question there is if you're if you're not around unbelievers, how do you influence them for the kingdom? You can't. Now that doesn't mean you buy into their worldview. I've known I've known people that are obnoxious on their they're Christians. And they're obnoxious on the job. I know I I, I got some faces and names coming to mind even as I speak. You know, people are like that and you know, Christ has called us to be salt and light and to influence people for the kingdom. And there comes a time when you may need to confront, you know. But by and large, that, that's not the way you see Paul doing evangelism. It's not the way Christ did evangelism. He became people's friends. Christ went over, of all things, to the publican's house and had dinner. Now, that was horrific for any... And the Pharisees about coughed up their skulls when the prostitute came in and broke the alabaster box and filled the room with the perfume. They were, they were beside themselves. How dare he allow this horrid living human being to touch him? They missed the point. The disciples were too. And Christ 
had to chew them out. That was a bad thing. I think you're going to say something. Yeah, and that, what happens is, you know, when I was growing up, evangelism was all about, you know, getting the commitment, signing the card, going for the kill, notching the Bible with the, you know, the, the next person. And it's like sometimes God wants you to pull a weed, you know, or, or something like that, you know, or answer a question. And, and see, when you understand that God builds his church, not you. It's not your responsibility to talk that person into becoming a Christian. Because you can't do it. If God is not working in their heart, you're wasting your time. Well, you know, if you have people that, you know, I always mock them, you know, like, um, how, do you, how do you handle that? Like, oh, my God. You know, I don't really tell a whole lot about Christ. Unless they come talk to me and ask yeah. me in that. But well, some well, people just come in and they all just start mocking, you know, me and Christ and all this stuff on my job. And this happens to me a lot. I would ignore it, um, and the reason I would, don't, you know, I think Christ said, "Don't cast your pearls before swine." Right. You know, if they if they want to listen, you know, give them an answer. If they want to talk, discuss it with them respectfully. If they just want to sit there and mock you, mm -hmm. and mock Christ, you, you know, don't don't fall into that. No, don't fall into that trap. I that. You know, um, I remember John MacArthur talking about the time Phil Donahue show called him up, wanting to be on the Phil Donahue show. That's when Phil Donahue was a big name. And they refu he refused to go on. And, you know, they kept calling and calling. And finally, what the gal said, don't you understand? This is a Phil Donahue show. Everybody wants to be on the Phil Donahue show. And his response was, why would I want to go on the Phil Donahue show and have Christ mocked? Okay. Now, he goes on Larry King Live because Larry King actually, you can have a dialogue with Larry King. He's wrong, but you can have a dialogue with him with these other guys, they just want to mock the truth. Don't don't waste your time. Christ did Christ waste his time talking to Herod? No. Why? Because Herod's gonna mock anyways. What what good is there to talk to Herod? You know? Um but but what you see here in, in Athens is Paul's evangelistic philosophy is to discuss it, to talk to the people. He didn't compromise on the truth, but he he found a way to communicate 
the gospel in a language and a format that they could relate to. And that's the trick. The, 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 the challenge we have as Christians is to take the message of the gospel and communicate it in language that our society understands without altering the message. You can't alter the message. But you need to communicate in a way that can be understood. And that's what Paul did. And uh, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So, he, you know, he's sitting there saying this, and a bunch of the people saying, what's this babbler saying? Now, you got to understand, this is the Mecca for this. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, they had every Tom, Dick, and Harry coming into this place trying to peddle their new philosophy or their new, you know, understanding or whatever. And uh, they said, well, what's he have to say? So they took him up to the Areopagus. May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Hey, there's a new idea. Let's listen to it. That's the high place. That's the place where all the philosophers went. Mars Hill. Okay. I think the Parthenon is on it, if I'm not mistaken. It's the hill there in the middle of Athens. And that's where all the philosophers showed up. That was where they all would sit there all day long and discuss the latest and greatest philosophical idea that's came across. Now, do we do the same thing today? Sure, it's called television. It's called daytime television. All right? Daytime radio. Yeah. No. They they want to fit, you know, there's this hey, there's a new cool idea. Let's see what he has to say. I mean, they they were they were into this stuff all day long. What's the latest greatest fad? Now, let me tell you something, folks. Us Christianity in general is the most gullible group of people on the planet when it comes to these latest and greatest fads. These psychologists come trotting along, and they come up with some late, great, new, neat idea, and we just suck it up hook, line, sinker, rod, reel, and we got the guy's arm in our mouth. You know, we just suck it up. Folks, we don't need to be sucked in with this philosophical junk. You do know if philosoph- here's Here's a great, let, let, me, let me just lay it out like this. Psychology and philosophy, both of those, lump them together. If they're right, what do they agree with? (laughs) (laughs) If philosophy and psychology are correct, with what do they agree? It's It's not a trick question. The Bible, right? They do. If they're correct... They agree with the Bible. If they're not correct, what do they disagree with? And that's not a trick question. The Bible. Therefore, if you have to spend your time figuring or studying something, what should you study? The Bible. The Bible. Forget the philosophy. Forget the psychology. Because when it's right, it agrees with the Bible. When it's wrong, it disagrees with the Bible. Therefore, you don't need it. You need the Word of God. Why do you need to say? I took a class in philosophy at the Oberlin College, a sort of interesting class. Um, Gil Mickelson I took it from him. He's a good guy. And we spent an entire semester talking about what other guys think about life. And they're all wrong. Because they all disagree with the Word of God, they all disagree with the Scripture. So I spent an entire semester of my times reading and studying guys that were wrong. 
Don't we do that? No, it's in the theology. Don't we read all the comments, commentaries from people off the wall? Well, that's different when we're trying to understand the Word of God. The, the difficulty, you know, like now it's it's sort of interesting in the philosophy class because it does help you understand how fallen man thinks. So there was some value in it. But by and large, Immanuel Kant, Soren Kierkegaard, David Hume, I all these names, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. They don't understand the meaning of life because they reject the author of the Bible. They're all still trying to figure out why they're here. They have no idea why they're here. They have no idea where they came from. They don't have no idea where they're going. You know, and, and it's, it's, a, it's an exercise in futility. You don't need to go down that path. God has given you the answers. Why are you here? Why, why do you exist? That's not a trick question. Why do you exist? To glorify God. And God ordained your existence in eternity past, all right, for his own pleasure. And why did God save you? Because he wanted to. He wanted to do that. Where are you going? To heaven. So now you figured out where you came from. God created you. Where are you? Who? Why you're here? He wanted you here. Where you're going? You're going to go to heaven and have a relationship with Him for eternity. You've got the answers to life. They're still trying to figure that out. And every every time you turn around, there's some new notion of what this is all about. And the same thing with psychology. You got you you know you you can see the fads come and go, come and go, come and go. Something comes in, it's really hot for a while, it's really a big deal. And then it sort of fades away because some new neat idea comes along. And it's a dead end. And that's what these philosophers here in Mars Hill are doing. They're listening to one new notion after another, trying to figure out the meaning and purpose of life. Here's a guy who comes along with the answer. And where did he get the answer? It's not his own great intellect and mind and understanding. It's because God revealed it. And remember, that's what we talked about last semester in Bibliology. God stepped into time and gave us his message. It comes from outside. It doesn't come with inside us. So he says here, uh, tell us this new doctrine, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, look, understand, they didn't want to know what they mean um, because they were seeking the truth. They were seeking the questions. And that's one of the interesting things. You've got to understand something about, about modern education when it comes to philosophy. They don't want to find the answers. And why, why, do, why is that? Well, to them, there's no correct answer. But if you have the answer, what happens? Now what do I do? I got the answer. You know? Yeah, what next? They don't want to find the answer. They're like Paul says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's interesting, I sat in the philosophy class there, and all they had was question after question after question after question. And if I understand, say, you know, I know the answer to that question. It's like, no, don't, because then the class is over. We can't discuss, <laughs> discuss it. 
you know, and that's what you see. These guys wanted the newest, latest, greatest fads. They weren't necessarily in finding, more interested in finding an answer because then, you know, what do they do tomorrow? The search is the important fun part. And see, that's the trap we've fallen into in, in our postmodern culture, right? There, there are no answers. You got an answer, you got an answer, you got an, And we're all right in our own way. And the worst thing you do is tell somebody you're wrong because how dare you intrude on their own little notion of what they think is reality. And what you see here is they want to, what's the latest cool thing coming down the pike? Because, you know, they're the intellectual muckety-mucks of the day. They want to know what's the latest, greatest thing. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who, who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Verse 21. It's sort of like people watching TV in the daytime. All these talk shows. And after a while, they all say the same thing. Nothing. Then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Um, Athens was a place where they had temples for everything, right? And really... Understand how the world operates. For the most part, most part, believe anything you want, just don't believe you're right. That's the taboo. You go to Oberlin College and you say, I'm right, they'll run you out of town on a rail. If you say, this is my spin on reality, we're really uh, aliens from some other dimension, oh, wow, cool, let's talk about that. They don't care, right? As long as you don't say you're right, everything's fine. And what the Athenians did is they had temples to everything. And just in case they missed a god, they had a catch-all <laughs> to the unknown god. Okay, there's one we might have missed. And just, just so we don't get him upset, or her upset, we'll make an altar to them. And Paul says, you guys are very religious. Well, let me tell you about the one whom you worship, the unknown god, Without knowing, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about that one. Where does Paul start when he talks to these people? Creation. Creation. Why? They don't know anything about the God of Abraham, right? They start with creation. Why do you think evolution is the, is the, is the golden calf of our modern culture? Why do you think the liberals cough their skulls up every time you try to talk about intelligent design? Why do you think that? You can't start discussion without starting creation. Because if you can knock creation out of the picture, you're no different than a baboon, right? You're just a little more evolved than the monkey. And really, in the, in the, in the existential sense, What's the difference between you and a toad? Or you and a, be a beetle? There's no difference. You destroy the uniqueness of man. Your existence. Your existence. 
You 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 got life. A toad has life. A cat has life. What makes you more valuable than that little dog sitting next to you? I'm saying if you had a dog sitting next to you, you know, and and. In the evolutionary sense, there is no difference. You're just a little bit higher up on the food chain than the dog is. Wow. See, and that's why that's why when you look at evolution, why why it's such a damning thing to believe, because once you knock out the the creation of man by God and the special place that man has, the gospel is irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. Folks, don't mess around with the first twelve chapters of Genesis. Or 11 chapters. Don't mess around. God, it said, the Bible says God created the earth in six days. Take it for face value that that's what he did. Just believe him. And believe that the origin of all things is by God's creative power who stepped out on the edge of nothing and said, let there be and bang, here it is. Don't worry about this big bang, you know, billions of years ago and all this other rot. Look. Are they 24-hour days? They're 24-hour days. So why, why should we, are we missing the boat in the sense that no um, we're all arguing that we should teach creationism or intelligent design in the schools, and the argument comes back, well, it's not science. But it's philosophy. Why don't we just accept, well, then we should teach creation in philosophy class, make a manager. What's wrong with that? At least it's in the before. Because the world system is run by who? Believers. Behind the unbelievers. Satan. The God of this world. He doesn't want Satan. creation. Okay. It makes sense to me, right? I mean, it, it isn't science. Neither is no, neither is evolution. Well, they, they, they say it is, but it's not. I mean, even religion is not science. No. It's what is science? It's something that can prove. Really what's what's the basic tenet of science? How do you scientifically show it? It's repeatable. If I put this much carbon and this much sulfur and this much potassium nitrate together and light a match, it blows up. It's gunpowder. And it always blows up. And it will always blow up. All right? I can repeat it. I can do it here. I can do it in China. I can do it on the... Wherever, it's going to blow up. It's, it's repeatable. Repeat creation. Can't. Repeat evolution. Can't. I know what they say. But the, repeat it. Repeat it. I'll tell you what, for all your brains, take Don and make him look better by altering his genes. They'll probably kill him, right? Because we can't figure it out ourselves. We got the entire human genome and we still don't know what the genes mean. You know, the, the whole point here, folks, is you're right, it is absurd. But it's run by the God of this world. What do you expect? What do you expect? But but as Christians, the, the danger for us as Christians is that we, you know, we buy into these day-age theories and this theistic evolution nonsense. Look, God is an infinite God with infinite power. He didn't need to take 40 billion years to figure out how to create a human being from, from an amoeba. All right? That's not the way it works. God, could, God, God created Adam out of the dust of the ground in an instant in time. He didn't evolve a monkey over billions of years or millions of years. It just it didn't happen that way. Um, and that's where Paul starts. See, these people existed before Darwin sh 
came around in the 1800s. All ancient cultures believed that there was a God who created. Now, they had all kinds of screwy notions about how that might have worked, but nobody denied the fact that God created, that there was a, an intelligent design, intelligent being out there who created. That that had to wait until Darwin came along in 1880 with his, his theory of evolution and, a, and um, the whole origin of the species nonsense, which was a breath of fresh air for the pagans because now all of a sudden they could write off God. We don't need God. See, until that point, they needed God to create it. But now they've removed God from the necessity of creating anything because we're all just uh, an accident at the end of a long experiment by nature. And Paul says I'm, he's going to start with creation. He made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God is eternal. He doesn't dwell in a building or a box. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath and life gives to all life, breath, and all things. Does God does God need anything from us? Nothing. 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 It says elsewhere in scripture, what what have I done that men should what, what has man done that I should owe him? Does anybody do God a favor that God owes us one? God is the origin of everything. Life, breath, everything. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. God not only created, but what is he sovereign over? Boundaries. The boundaries, where they go, what they do, how long they live. That's all part of God's eternal design. Yeah, he's creator of everything. 25, 26. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God's created a vacuum. Uh, why is all people religious? Because that's the way God created you. That's the way God made you. And even those who are atheists still believe in something. Well, then, then why do we say that... Uh if we had a choice, we'd all turn from God. We want what God offers, but we don't want God for who he is. That's the message of Romans 3. Yeah, we, we want we want peace, joy, happiness, fulfillment. You know, we want all of the goodies that God gives us. But wanting God for just wanting God, no, the average pagan doesn't want that. They want what God gives, not for God for who he is. I believe that everybody in the earth worships something. Yeah. You know, if it ain't the true and living God, it's something in their life that right. they're worshiping. Or themselves. Yeah. So that's an innate ability. Yeah, that's something that God has created in the heart of every human being. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, even the atheists believe in themselves. You know, um, they, yeah, they believe in something. And uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Mm -hmm. Now, what he does, he quotes one of the pagan poets of Greek philosophy of that time. You say, how horrid would he do that? Well, what's Paul trying to get across here? That even they got the knowledge, they came from God. 
even though it, it may be degenerate and distorted, there is a vestigial truth that even the pagans stumble over. Right? They might accidentally find it. And it's not that Paul is ascribing, you know, inspiration to these poets. He's using them as an illustration. All right. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Divine nature. What's he talking about there? Idols. How can you reduce the infinite God to a hunk of metal? And yet we do, don't we? You know, this was, this was very evident to me in Europe. When I went to Europe, I remember walking through Notre Dame Cathedral. Massive structure, really interesting place. And uh, for five euros, you could go into the reliquary there. You know what a reliquary is. That's where all the relics are. The what? The relics. Um, you know, the sliver of the cross. You know, a tatter from Peter's robe. Or I, I'm making some. But they have all these little holy, holy junk they call I call it holy junk. Um, <laughs> but they got all of this stuff. And for so much euros, you can walk in and, and you, can, you can look at this. And you get some years knocked off purgatory if you do that. You know, if you actually make it in and see, oh, yeah, they got people go all over Europe making pilgrimages all over Europe to go to these reliquaries. And, and, and you know, they got a bottle of Mary's breast milk. Um, they've got uh, enough splinters of the cross to make about 10 of them, I think, in the world. They've got bits of pieces of bones of saints. And, I, you know, you name it. I don't know what all is in there. You know, there are all kinds of stuff in there. Um, but what is that? What have they reduced God to? The thing. A bunch of junk. Why do you think God said, "That's why I'm not making any graven images"? How do you, how do you create a, a, a pictorial representation or graven image of the invisible, infinite God? You can't. You can't. What do you think about the trial of That's a hoax. They proved it. They proved it actually was a hoax. I think. But you know what? The, the whole point. It, now, now, if you want to see it, remember, remember what happened. One of the, I forget which one of the Israelite kings, I think it was Joash, if I'm not mistaken. It was Joash or Josiah, and I can't remember which one it was. But he was noted for breaking in pieces Nehushtan. Remember that? Look that up in your King James Bible, Nehushtan. It means little brass thing. And what was it? It was the bronze serpent. And what had Israel done? Well, in the days of that king, Israel was worshiping the little bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. And the Bible says he broke it in pieces. Why? Because it had become a symbol of idolatry. Now, Hushtan, I don't know where, what verse it's in. It's, but, yeah, look on that. And, 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 and yeah, and, and what you have is 2 Kings 18.4. There you go. It's the little brass thing. It was the little little bronze serpent that they right. he broke it up because they were worshiping this this thing, you know. Paul is saying you can't you can't reduce the eternal infinite God who created everything to a to a representation of a hunk of metal. Truly, those times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, 
because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God said, you know, Paul is saying, you know, in times past, God may have put up with your ignorance. But you know what? What, is, what, is he, what has happened with the advent of Christ? Hebrews 1 and 2. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manner spake in time past to the fathers and apostles by the prophets, has in his last days spoken to us by his son. We've got all the answers. we got the information. And what has God commanded man to do now? Repent. What does it mean to repent? Change. 180. I'm going this way. I turn around. I go that way. Repentance is not changing your mind about Jesus. That's what Charles Ryrie says. It's much more than changing your mind about Jesus. Yeah, it does. That's all right. Um, no, there's some, there's some, there's some that say all repentance is is to change your mind about Jesus. All right. But if you study the word repentance in the Bible, it's more than changing your mind about Jesus. You have to change your mind about Jesus, which results in a change in your life, in your direction. It's not just changing your mind intellectually about something. You know, remember when, when the guy showed up to John? John is preaching what? What is John repeating? Repent. repent for the kingdom of his hand. And they said, well, what do you mean by repent? And how do you answer it? Change. How do you answer them? What do you mean repent? Well, specifically, he had said some things. He told the tax collectors they weren't to do what? Cheat people. He told the soldiers to be satisfied with their pay, right? And when somebody asked Jesus about it, he said, well, if somebody asks you to go with a mile, go with him too. If he wants your coat, give him your cloak. Repentance is changing your life, folks. It's not just changing your mind about something. It's a complete 180 turn. And if you, if you don't see a turn in someone's life and I'm going in a different direction, they haven't repented of anything. Repentance is more than just changing your mind about Jesus. It's a change of your life. It's a change of direction. It changes the way you act and what you do. And Paul is saying, you know what? There's coming a day when God's going to judge the world by who? Christ. Remember what Christ said? God, the Father, has given all judgment to who? Son. The Son. Who's sitting on the great white throne? The Son. The Son. How do you know that? Well, you can see him, right? What about God? Are you going to see God the Father in eternity? He's a spirit. You don't see spirit, right? But who are you going to see? The Son. He's the invisible. He is the visible representation of the invisible God. All right. And Paul is saying, you know, there's. And how did God validate his selection of the Son? By the resurrection. He raised him from the dead. That's the validator. Is it necessary that Christ rising him from the dead? Well, absolutely. If he didn't, we're all still in our sins. We're all still in our sins. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. 
However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Um, what was the response to this uh, resurrection of the dead? I mean, he's cruising right along, mentioned the resurrection of the dead, and then they sort of like took a U-turn. Why? Well, they heard enough. Well, to understand the answer to that, you've got to go back and understand the major overarching, overriding philosophy of that day. Okay? And really, it, it's, it's a major philosophy. There's two major philosophies in the world today. Two, two big umbrella, I'm talking about non-biblical philosophies. One's called monism. Monism. Two philosophies, two, two overarching, overriding global philosophies. All right? Yeah, not Moanism. Monism. Okay? Monism. No, not M-O-E-N. You know, don't 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 get my company hard turn, you know. Okay? And that that comes from the concept of one. And what monism basically says is that the entire universe, all of creation, is made out of a single substance in various forms. All right? And this is the underlying overarching philosophy of Buddhism, Hinduism, all, New Age is all behind this. All right? Um, the New Age says there's only one substance in the universe, God, and we're all pieces of God. You're God, I'm God, the cup's God, the book's God, this chair's God. Everything's God, okay? God is all, all is God. You know, and that's that's really the philosophy underneath the New Age movement. And also Hinduism, Buddhism, and a few others, all right? The other major philosophy, and this is the one that really is in play in in um, Greece is dualism. What's dualism come from? Two, okay? What dualism, the philosophy of dualism basically says, all right, is that there are two substances in the universe, spirit and matter. Spirit is good, matter is bad. Okay? That's basically the philosophy behind dualism. Spirit is good, Matter is bad. And because of that, okay, why would anybody who's been released from the evil flesh want to come back to evil flesh? That's the philosophy. The Greek philosophy was spirit is good, matter is evil. Therefore, there's a lot of nasty things that come out of that. This, by the way, leaked into the church big time. And Gnosticism. We talked about that before, right? And you had, huh? Gnosticism. Called. This turned into, in the church, it turned into Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism is, it's, it, Gnosticism is based on secret knowledge, secret information. And there are two major branches of this. One of them was Docetic, Docetic Gnosticism. Docetic, and one was Serinthian. Serinthian. And there's all kinds of brands of them. But Docetic Gnosticism basically said Jesus Christ was not um, material. He was a ghost. Um, because the Holy God would never take the, the, the form of degenerate evil matter. Therefore, Christ 
really didn't die on the cross as a human being. He was really a, a spirit being that walked around. All right, he just looked like he was human. And John talks about this when he said, we have seen and touched and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's talking about this docetic Gnosticism. Serinthian Gnosticism basically said Jesus was just this average, normal Jewish guy walking around Palestine and the Christ spirit came upon him and he did some miracles and then before he died, the Christ spirit left. And so the human Jesus is the one who died on a cross. He was no big deal. He certainly wasn't God. And there's all brands of this. But all of this comes out of this dualism which says matter is evil and spirit is good. And you see this throughout the New Testament in some places where Paul, where Paul intersects this philosophical idea. For example, um, in Philippians, he says there's some that say the, the belly is for food and food for the belly. Remember that? Philippians 3. And the whole idea there is that there are some believers who taught, look, your, your body is evil. So if you, if you engage in immorality, sexual immorality, gluttony, it, it doesn't matter because the body's, look, the body's done for. It's evil anyway, so why try to control it? It doesn't matter because your spirit is really what counts. The spirit is good. Don't, don't care what your body does. If you want to engage in immorality, God doesn't care because he's going to destroy the physical body anyways. And that was an antinomian kind of philosophy that started rearing its head. And Paul dealt with that in the Philippians. And the overriding Greek philosophy of the day was founded in this thing of dualism, which says matter is evil, spirit is good. All the mystery religions, uh, the, the Gnostic religions of, of Greece, had to do with this dual nature. And so in the Greek mind, the greatest... The, the, the best thing to happen would be for you to die because then your spirit is finally released from the bondage of being encased in evil matter. All right? So when Paul comes along and talks about how Christ was raised again from the dead, that just that flew in the face of everything they believed about matter because in their philosophy, matter was something you wanted to get rid of because only then could you really be a true and pure spirit. All right, that was the overarching. So when Paul talked about the resurrection of the flesh, immediately they began mocking. It didn't fit in with their notions. But there's some who believed, right? There's some who believed. And others said, um, come back later. And really that's sort of, you know, if you want to think about it, that's sort of the three major ways people respond, right? You can preach the gospel and some people will mock. Some people say, oh, you know, that's interesting. I'll come back next Sunday and listen to what the guy has to say. And every once in a while, someone says, I believe. I believe it. And Paul faced that here in, in Athens. Yeah. What is that in the Bible when it says that, you know, there's no good thing that grew up in the flesh? That may be what it is. No, it's not. That's not. No, and, and the answer to that, that's a good question. Because that's an excellent that's question. Say, you know, they want Paul is talking there about the fallenness. He's not talking about necessarily your physical body, although in our case our fallenness is encased in physical flesh. But there's some day that you're going to be a physical being but not sinful, right? He's talking about your fallen nature. This is founded in, in philosophical dualism which ran deep in Greek thought. And almost all the Greek um, philosophies had some foundation 
in this thinking. This is sort of a, an odd thing. This came over, you know, this is really Hindu, Buddhist, Far Eastern kind of philosophy. How did they get all these different religions like this? Um, you can before dog movies. Yeah. Yeah, um, men reject the truth and they come up with their own system. You know, I mean, here's the here's the here's the issue, folks. You put you take two hundred super intelligent, most intelligent human beings you can find on a planet, put them in a room, and tell them to come up with the meaning of life, and you'll get two hundred different answers. Because because in our own minds we cannot determine the meaning of life. It has to come from outside the box. It has to come from God who tells us about it. Because you're not going to find it. The average human being, not the average, any human being, left to their own devices and told, go out and find the truth, they're not going to find it in a million years. That's something that God has to reveal. And that's what you see. When men reject God as the source of truth, what are they left with? Well, they got to come up with something. And that's where all the religions come from. They come up with something. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. Well, it's, it's foolishness. And then when the truth comes along, they think, oh, it's moronic to them. And why is that? Because the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. That's why God has to override your depravity before you can become a believer. Because left to your own devices, you're not going to figure it out. You're just not. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.